Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to the Sully Baseball Feed. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. This is going to be the last of the sneak peek of Bull Durham Minute that I'm going to be dropping on this feed. Dan Epstein is the guest on this. He's the author of Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes. We talked about Minute 4 of Bull Durham. We talk a little bit about rock and roll. We talk a little bit about North Carolina and baseball movies as a whole. This is the last of the sneak peeks because the show is now available on Apple Podcasts. So I hope you've enjoyed these first four minutes that I have dropped as a sneak preview. And now you can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Player FM, all the places you get podcasts, and you can subscribe to the show and catch the rest of the episodes for all the minutes and there's going to be great guests we've already recorded about 40 episodes and i think it's coming together great so enjoy this last sneak peek and then please subscribe to boulder a minute so here's a little bit of boulder a minute of minute four and the end of our sneak peek welcome to boulder a minute This is the podcast where we break down the 1988 classic movie one minute at a time. So put your hands together for your host, our own Paul Francis Sullivan. Feel free to call him Sully. Welcome back to Bold Durham Minute, the podcast where we break down my personal favorite baseball movie of all time, one minute at a time. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, I'm begging you, call me Sully. In today's minute, we begin with Annie walking to the stadium and Ron Shelton's credit popping up, and it ends with Robert Wall laughing probably a little too hard at the antics of Max Patkin as Trey Wilson as Skip comes up to him. Well, I have on the line with me a guest. I I am going to bring on someone who is a tremendous baseball writer and someone who I've been an admirer of for a while, and then we've got to know each other and actually attend a ball game, at least one, maybe even more. But I know we've, we've been to this to Dodger Stadium together, and the wonderful writer of Big Hair and Plastic Grass and Stars and Strikes, Mr. Dan Epstein. How are you, Dan? Hey, Sully. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm thrilled that you're on here. I love if you're a baseball fan, and you just love not the minutia of the numbers, but of the... the narrative and and just enjoying it as a fan i can give no higher compliment than your two books big hair and plastic grass and stars and strikes because they've both been in my bathroom for a very long period of time (laughs) i know exactly where you're coming from and i uh, truly appreciate that thank Um, you some books like you know bill carter's the the late shift about jay leno and, and letterman spike Mike Slackers and Dyke about the uh, independent films of the 1980s, as well as Easy Riders right. and Raging Bulls. Yeah, these are all these Great are all, book. yeah. And then, and I have to you know what I have to say because I was you know a big fan of Big Hair and Plastic Grass. I found myself I reread Stars and Strikes more. That and and you know, uh, and I appreciate you saying that. Frankly, I think it's the better of the two. I I I. I, I, I was able, because I was only concentrating on a specific year, the 1976 season, I, it gave me more room to tell more stories. And, and, uh, and there are so many great stories in that season and that year that uh, I was really able to sink my teeth into it in a way that I wasn't uh, in, in Big Hair and Plastic Grass. And that's not a slight on Big Hair and Plastic Grass. I adore that book, but it feels like, and please don't take this the wrong way, it feels like it's a 
250 page chapter in this 2000 page book I wish I was reading. It's uh, yeah, no, a, 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 a book I wish I could write, but maybe when I win the lotto, I'll have the time to do it. You know, there's a story about when they pointed the Hubble telescope at a point of space that they thought was totally black and they kind of adjusted it and they saw all these galaxies they didn't know that existed. That's what this book is like for the 1976 season. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, they, they found a ball at Willie Stargell hit or something like that. <laughs> no, I was trying to say that that was the kind of a deep dive. You found galaxies that didn't exist. But do you know oh, what? oh, thank you. Stargell did hit a few deep, so I must say. Um, <laughs> but, and I know someone who would appreciate Willie Stargell, and that was Annie Savoy in Bull Durham. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm thrilled that you picked this minute to be on because you are a Venn diagram for what I want to talk about with this minute. And that is, it's a romance of baseball, and you've written two wonderful romances of baseball. There's an element of rock and roll in this with uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, and you have written for Rolling Stone, and you've forgotten more about rock and roll than I'll ever know. And where, <laughs> and where are you currently in the planet? If I would put a pin on a map, uh, where are you currently in the planet? I am in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is about an hour west of durham that's right so you're in the north carolina and so there's yep. we see baseball we see north carolina and we hear some rock and roll and i have some specific questions about that but let's start right at the beginning as we see annie walking down the streets of durham and i've been in north carolina a lot this looks like a lot of north carolina <laughs> to me there's some of the buildings that are old and some of them may not be in the best shape and in the middle of it is this gem of a minor league stadium. Right. And the, this is the Durham Athletic Park, or DAP, as it was uh, colloquially known. And it's located, it, it's actually still standing. Bulls don't play there anymore, but it's located in what's known as the warehouse district of Durham. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you've got Annie walking down a uh, street, Morris Street, which, uh, you know, they've got it set up to look as picturesque as possible. And, and, and her, her sort of, you come upon the ballpark and sort of sunk, sunken into the ground. But actually that area is, is, is pretty not picturesque. It's, it's a lot of parking lots, a lot of where, you know, crummy warehouses. And, you know, but, but I think they, they frame it perfectly. There are two kind of narrators of this film. There, Annie is the literal narrator of this film, and we see much of it from her point of view. But certainly the romantic and spiritual point of view of baseball is told from her point of view. So this may be like not the most reliable narrator. You know, you sort of create this picturesque diamond in the middle of this town. And then you have right. the more realistic narrators, which are the, the players who are, you know, this is their job, and there's a little more of a lunch pail quality to what they're doing here. Uh, right. So maybe this is slightly, you know, idealized in Annie's view here. It's, it's, it's a jam-packed stadium, of course, on a weekday in April. Right. <laughs> but I, you know, as a baseball romantic myself, I, I get it. That sense of anticipation and excitement when you're walking up to the ballpark. I mean, you, I've, I think this, this minute really shows that. And, and I, you know, I still experience it. Walking up to the Greensboro Grasshoppers ballpark this, <laughs> this last year, I get the same buzz. Yeah, I, you know what? It's, I, I'm glad because they, they capture that moment. This whole thing is building up. 
She walks past the, the souvenir stands, the people in there, and she smiles at someone as if she, she knows people there. And right. the, 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 the music builds up, and then, then you, you, know, you pan left, and there's the diamond. And that never gets old for me. The last game I went to, as of we were recording this, I went to one of the playoff games at Dodger Stadium between the Nats and the, uh, and the Dodgers. And right. earlier in the year, I went to a game at the Oakland Coliseum where I sat up in Mount Davis. And yet, that moment when you take the turn, you walk up the tunnel, and you see the field, it never gets old. Mm. It never gets old. No, me, me, me either. You know, and it, and it, and again, it could be uh, a game between two teams that I know nothing about, that I care nothing about, but it's just like it is a sacred space. And I think Annie's monologue about the Church of Baseball, I think that's perfectly synced to that moment where she enters the cathedral. This is how much I always feel it. I felt it when I went to Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. I felt it at La Stade Olympique in Montreal. I mean, you think about it, so I've been to some of the worst stadiums in baseball history. You know, you know, right, but so, but so much history in both. You know, right. even if aesthetically they're not uh, to your liking, it's just that that you know so much went down. I mean, I regret that I never made it to Three Rivers. I regret that I've only seen. Stad Olympique from the exterior, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like I, I even was the Metrodome in, in in Minneapolis, just a re- horrible, I, horrible place. But yeah. you know, it's it's it uh, that there were there's uh, some legends uh, strode that field, so uh, that's that's pretty awesome. My dad and I used to take trips when I was in college to go see some of these stadiums. And we intentionally picked stadiums we felt were probably not far from the record ball. So we went yeah. to Three oh, Rivers. Wise. We went to Three Rivers. We went to Riverfront. We went to Old Cleveland Stadium. We went to Tiger Stadium, which you know very well because you grew up in Michigan. Yes. We Still went, my, my all-time favorite. We went to uh, County Stadium in Milwaukee. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to, we went to Stade Olympique and when we were in, when we were in Montreal, we went to Jerry Park, which they were dismantling at the time. And it's wow. not a center, but we were there when they were ripping the seats out of Jerry Park. And, Man. and it's funny, you mentioned that, like I, I poo pooed a little bit of Three Rivers, but I actually have the first World Series I watched was the 79 World Series. And I've read so much about the 71 team. And right. But one of the stadiums that gave me the most goosebumps walking into it was Riverfront in Cincinnati. Even though, yes, it's a cookie cutter park, but I'm like, this is where the big red machine played. Yeah. On this donut. Yeah, it's heavy. Yeah. It's, 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 does, it's not about this, you know, the beauty. It's about what took place here. And it was the beginning of WKRP in Cincinnati where they. Right. <laughs> Let's get down to brass tacks. And what an incredible show that was. Okay, so Annie walks into the stadium. We see the bull, and let's just address the bull for a second here. That's a pretty. What's your, tell me your thoughts. I don't, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth. Your thoughts on the bull costume? Oh, oh, the, the costume itself. Yeah. I mean, that that's. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would I would uh, describe that as I don't know. That's really like. <laughs> the, the, the person in there is I just I just feel like the person inside that costume is really hating life yeah and 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 because also 
Yeah, because he the, the costume looks terrible, and he's kind of unenthusiastically shaking hands with people. Yeah, it's just like, oh man, I, I, you know, he's probably like completely hungover. Just uh, <laughs> you know, like maybe it's not even the regular bull. Like this is a guy who agreed <laughs> to fill in, and now he's regretting his choices, or maybe he's regretting his life choices in general. Yeah. And then we get a lot of shots, which I, I look at. I don't know if this was the case. These look a little like they were probably shot at a real game with real reactions of people. And one clue for yeah. me is the light totally does not match what we've just been seeing. It looks like No, a absolutely not. Yeah, it looks like a day game, and then they cut to Max Patkin, and it's clearly a night game. <laughs> yeah. Now, get to Max here for a second. Max is dressed – I mean, Max is – um, older than the dirt he's dancing on when he's doing this scene. He's got the weird Mets shirt and the hat and doing his dance. And I don't want to speak ill, but I probably would not be laughing that hard at this routine he's doing. Is that mean on my part? That this just seems- No, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, I don't know. I, I've, I always found Max Patkin very sad. I think, you know, it's, it's almost like a sad clown act and, and, you know, where it's just like, I want to, I want to like, you know, put my arm around the guy and like, like go buy him a beer or something. It's just like his act was, was clearly very popular at one point, but it's, it's sort of like, I mean, it's like vaudeville. It's, it, it's, yeah. it is not aged well. And even, you know, a film in the late eighties, like he was long past his prime or even his target audience. I mean, the, the, you know, you, you want somebody like the San Diego chicken out there, but Max Patkin, it's like even kids in the eighties were like, you know, what the play ball this guy too. So <laughs> yeah, it, it, I feel kind of oddly melancholy when, whenever I, I see those shots of Max Patkin in action. Where I'll give them credit is this. I give credit they got the real Max Patkin and he gets his own credit at the beginning of the film. Uh, yes, and listen, hopefully he was paid well. He does get a scene with Susan Sarandon and Kevin Costner later in the film where it's important right. that he knows Crash Davis. So there's this sense of, you know, you have this scene between Annie, Crash, and Max. So it's kind of like three baseball lifers hanging on. So the, right. that aspect of it is nice, but man, as a man who hates clowns, it's I, I, you, the San Diego chicken and the Philly fanatic, they, they stand on the shoulders of giants. And maybe this is kind of like, you know, I have a hard time watching Jean-Luc Godard films, but I understand how he influences Corsese and everything. So maybe right. uh, Max Packin is the Jean-Luc Godard of baseball clowns. Yeah, no, I, I think that's 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 a good analogy, and you know, I mean, I definitely respect him, but I also I feel very sad. And and your point about like them big three baseball lifers—that's something I hadn't thought about with, with that particular scene, and just that that they are all kind of—I don't want to use the word pathetic, but there is, there is <laughs> there is an element that to all three characters, and uh, you know, and they're they're all stuck for one reason or another yeah. in this kind of nether world. Yeah, they're never going to get back to the show, basically. Right. Oh, by the way, I want to point out one thing, a very important thing. There's a moment at second 47 on the clip when Annie 
walks past the section that's very clearly labeled players' wives. The wives, right. all, they all know who she is. They all say hello. She does a little Google Gaga thing to the little baby, and then she walks on. That's what, less than, it's like four seconds long, and yet that one shot diffuses so much potential tension about Annie's character, because she says at the beginning, right. she stoops a ball player every season, and that one shot says, don't worry, she's not a homewrecker. She's not interested in, the, in any of the married players. And the wives know her and know, you know, kind of probably know the score. So there is. Well, I mean, it, it also occurred to me seeing this, that those wives, you know, at least one or two of those wives probably were groupies. Yeah. And so they, they, they know the deal. And maybe they were groupie pals of Annie's at one point, And now they've hooked up with a guy and he's still kicking around in the minor leagues and they've got kids now. But you're right. I mean, there's clearly no tension between them it's it's they're not different camps they're kind of right. different versions of of the same person all right i got this is the main reason i want you on all this baseball talk north carolina talk that's fine now i gotta get to the rock and roll question and this comes from a personal quirk of mine and it's a it's an irrational quirk but it's a quirk that i have and she takes the turn at, at second 21 we see the ballpark and they, they start playing, the credits are done rolling, and they play Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock for this opening yeah. montage. Okay. I'm not going to tell you my thoughts on this. I want to hear your thoughts. You're Mr. Rock and Roll. That's your official title. I want, <laughs> That's what they call me. Yeah. I want to know your thoughts of them using Rock Around the Clock in this scene. I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I think, you know, the song is great. Obviously, it is a very important place in rock and roll history. Obviously, but but I also feel like it's been overused. I mean, you had it in the opening of, of Blackboard Jungle, the, the 1956 film that that was a major rock and roll cinematic moment when that was used. And then it was used for the, at least for, for the original start of the TV show Happy Days, which was a 50s nostalgia uh, TV show uh, in the 70s. And, you know, by the time you get to the late 80s, like the, the song is kind of played out. And I, I don't really, you know, it's better certainly than a lot of songs you hear at the ballpark today. Yeah. But it, but it just, it just feels kind of stale. Like, like really, this is, this is what they came up with. And, you know, and I, I don't think I've ever been in a ballpark and, and God knows I've been in many where I've heard that song played. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, and, and it's not like, maybe there's like a North Carolina connection that I'm missing with Bill Haley, but yeah, I, I really, you know, if, if there are a lot of North Carolina songs or, you know, songs by North Carolina-based artists, uh, a lot of R&B and, and, you know, 60s pop songs that would be perhaps more appropriate from that angle. I, I'm not sure where you're coming from on this, but but I have to say that it's, it's kind of a dull squib where it could have been a much more, uh, something much cooler. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, I forgot it was in the original opening of Happy Days because I associate with the opening credits of American Graffiti, which they used it. Oh, like, right, duh. Right. And no, but course, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, they did use it like for the first season of Happy Days. Uh, yeah. And I have a weird thing about, and, and I do know it was in Blackboard Jungle and they used it in American Graffiti, which was kind of 
groundbreaking in using nostalgia music and making it wall to wall music basically right um and setting up the this is the era we're in so that was kind of the big song i have a weird thing about if i associate a song with a movie i don't want to hear it in another movie unless they're doing a parody no, I, like in vacation they had they they did a a, a chariots of fire parody in vacation but like i personally associate with american graffiti or you can but some people with blackboard jungle and I kind of cringe when I see even good directors. Like, I, I mean, Scorsese keeps dipping into the Gimme Shelter well. I think he Oh, God, that, that drives me nuts. I think he used it in The Last Temptation of Christ and the Age of Innocence. I'll have to double check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, def- definitely. You want the stones to add a little something extra to the crucifixion. Well, you know. But, you know, I... I, I absolutely agree with you. I, th- I think that there's there's so much great music out there, and it 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 feels very lazy to me when filmmakers, you know, well, I mean, it feels especially lazy to me when Scorsese keeps going back to that. Well, but it's like, yeah, dude, it's a great song, I know, but like, surely there has to be something else to heighten the drama that that you can find out there, and 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 so yeah, so same here. It's like surely you could have found something else to kind of convey good time family entertainment outdoors on a all american sporting events type of thing so there has to be a thousand other songs you could have picked for this and and it's funny like one of the things i do i don't love everything tarantino's done but i do love that when he goes and he pulls a song out he usually dives a little deeper into the well than most people right. do. There's some songs, and therefore, and, and to a lesser degree, Wes Anderson does the same thing. And so when, they're, when you're listening to it, it's a lot of times, it's, you may know it, but you, you know everything. You were probably listening to Thin Lizzy or something before I called, but... You know, <laughs> I, was, I was actually listening to the Chantays, or a early okay. 60s instrumental band Fair that, enough. That, that I'm sure Tarantino would be into. And and when you have a song that you're not that familiar with or that isn't part of our lexicon, our, our cinematic lexicon, then you can associate you would associate it with Bull Durham. The scene should have it had this beautiful music leading up to it, that sort of soulful southern music. And then right. it's, it's kind of lazy. And I I think in yeah. a vacuum, if this hadn't been in other movies, I probably would be a lot better with it. But I since I already associate it. You know, I know this is this is a little tangent, but it's on that same subject. The movie I don't know if you remember the movie Watchmen that came out in two thousand eight or nine, which is the adaptation right. of a graphic novel. Oh, a graphic novel which I consumed as a kid and I loved it as a teenager. Yeah. And finally, there's a movie about it. I turned it off twenty minutes into it and returned the DVD because, and the the thing that did because they were making every lazy music choice you can possibly make. And during the right. funeral of the comedian, they started playing the Sounds of Silence by Paul by Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, and I'm like going, that's the graduate. The graduate claimed that. Yes. The graduate. Right. The graduate. Yeah. I, it's like we're listening. Are we listening to the temp track of there? Put a song that makes you feel like this. And I turned it off. So right. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with it. That every every lazy music. There's a Vietnam sequence. So let's play Rite of the Valkyries. Like, no, Coppola claimed that. Right. These aren't obscure. And American Graffiti came out only 15 years before this movie. 
So it wasn't like right. it was uh, uh, that far removed from it. So uh, that's that's a that's one of my that's a that's a slight dock against the film there for my point. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. And uh, and of course, at the very end, we have the first shot of Robert Wall as Larry. This is the best use of Robert Wall, I think, cinematically in our, <laughs> in our history. I'm trying to get Robert Wall on the show. I would love to have his thoughts and everything on the show. I have met the man before, and he was a very kind and gracious to me when I met him. Uh, oh, well, uh, that, that's, that's nice. I think he is very well cast. I think Robert Wall is very well cast in this film. He's, he's laughing a, a little too hard at um, the antics of Max Patkin, but we see the, uh, no, actually, no, you know, I was, I was going to say the tail end of the shot, you saw Trey Wilson, but no, this cuts off just before he shows up. Yeah. So the great Trey Wilson, AKA Nathan Arizona, uh, in one of his last, this was one of his last movies, actually. From what I understand, Robert Wall gave, at the time he was a, a successful stand-up, and I think he had just, I may have the time he was starting one, but he had just done Good Morning Vietnam, which was, of course, a big, huge hit. And according to Ron Shelton in the commentary, Robert Wall's audition was horrible. He was way over the top and everything. But he liked his energy and his baseball knowledge and knew if he could, if he could rein him back, he would be ideal as the, the nominal pitching coach, Larry. We will find out later that, Annie is much more of a hands-on pitching coach than uh, Larry. Right. <laughs> there you go. Well, that and that's, uh, I don't know what else you've got, but that's what I've got for minute four of Bull Durham. Any, any thoughts? Yeah. Any thoughts, concerns, questions? Well, I, I would say, you know, uh, people ask me all the time, like, what, what are my favorite baseball films? And I think that by and large, Hollywood has not done a good job with baseball films. And with the exception of the Bad News Bears, which I think is just a brilliant film on uh, the original Bad News Bears, yeah. which I think is such a brilliant film on so many levels. I don't think there are many really great baseball films. Mm -hmm. But whenever I'm asked, I would say Bull Durham is my number two. Yeah. That, uh, that, and that pretty much everything else falls very far below Bad News Bears and Bull Durham. Yeah, I well, and, and there's also Ed with Matt LeBlanc and the Chimp playing third base. That that's a that's a solid film. <laughs> that's the one for the ages. Well, you you need to sometimes. You basically, I like the realism of it. It's very gritty. You feel like you're part of it. I actually have seen that movie, and uh, it's not good. I don't want to start spoiler. <laughs> really. <laughs> Spoiler Damn, alert. I had that all. I had that in my Netflix queue and everything. Do you what I think they should have done with that? Because the, you 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 knew when they did an assembly cut of that, they looked up and said, "What are we doing? We can't release this." this. Right. And okay. if I were the producers of Friends, because that that show that came out while the show was out, and that they could print money, I would have. If I were right. Friends, I would have bought the rights to this and created a storyline that Joey had appeared in a film. His one break was he appeared in a film with a third base playing chimp. And throughout the seasons, you see clips of this film that he was in that is so, that's like notoriously horrible. And like, yeah, I was in the chimp movie. And then you start to see bits and pieces of it on the TV. And eventually you will have seen the whole movie because that's how they should have released it. That's the only way. It's like, yeah, Joey was cast in a film with a third base playing chimp. That's what they should have done. And it would have been so much better than 
asking someone to hire a babysitter and go see that film in the theaters. Yeah. Someone else will have to yeah, do Ed. I will not do Ed Minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you, if I do a Bad News Bears Minute, if I wind up doing this again, I do a Bad News Bears Minute, I'm going to have you back because... Oh, please. No, I mean, I can, I can talk all day about any, just about any moment in that, in that uh, film. And I have to say, you, I, I'm going to credit you as the one to kind of steer me towards the excellence of that film. Because I had only seen really? it. Really? It was, I was too young when it came out. It came out in 76, and I was four. My parents right. didn't take it to me then. And when I was like nine or ten or something like that, I saw the one that was in the Astrodome with, uh, you know, was it that Breaking, breaking Training? Is that breaking it? Training, yeah. So I saw yeah, that. Which is, which is not good. And so it was kind of like, oh, I get, I get it. I get it. They're kids. They play baseball. The, the coach is drunk. Got it. And I just went through right. the rest of my life without seeing it. And I think I saw it once when I was in – someone kept saying to me, like, no, you got to see the first one. And I saw it, and, but kind of like was – I think I was ironing while it was on. I didn't really – it didn't make an impact. And then it was in your book where you were talking about it the way that most people talk about Fellini's eight and a half. And, <laughs> and I'm like going, Jesus, really? Really? And so I rented it and said, I got to sit down and actually watch this instead of like the half-assed way I watched it before. And I was like, and I, with your enthusiasm, you know, I trusted your point of view, but this was like, this was after my kids were born. You know, this is after I knew you. So, I mean, it must have been. Right. I, I'm going to guess it was like 2011 or 2012 or something like that. I was like. Yeah, it's I, within the last decade for sure. Yeah. And I, I rented it uh, and I watched it. And I said, oh, man, there is a lot more going on to this film than, than some cute kids playing baseball. There's this, this is, there's a lot, there's a lot of subtext in this film that I never would have thought existed. So I credit you yeah. for opening my eyes on the excellence of the uh, of the Bad News Bears. Well, thank you. That that's that's uh, my, my work is done. <laughs> All right, hey uh, Dan Epstein, we're, um, and I'm pronouncing your name right because once you are you are correct. I called you. You were on the Sully Baseball podcast. I called you Dan Epstein, and um, you were uh, you 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 corrected me pretty quickly on that. <laughs> you know i mean it's it's not an offensive mispronunciation no. but let's you know let's 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 do it like i do it yeah absolutely all right uh anything you want to plug where what anything you want to get where people can buy obviously buy your books i'm going to put links to it online whenever this one actually drops and uh anything cool well the the, the only uh New news is that there is, I did an audiobook version of Big Hair and Plastic Grass, oh, wow. which came out via Blackstone Publishing this summer. And uh, you can download it from pretty much any audiobook site, or you can actually buy the, there's like a, uh, there's like a CD set with like 10 CDs, or you can, uh, there's, there's like one kind of, it's like a super CD or something where you oh. can then put it in your computer and then burn it onto individual CDs. I, I don't know how that works. I'm old, but it is, it is out there and you can hear my dulcet uh, tones reading every word. I love your voice. You know, I love your voice. So this is uh, thank you. 
and and I may I may wind up getting that because the idea of you reading that to me is excellent. Uh, one of the few I had read the book Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, uh, where he's telling his stand-up mm-hmm. stories. Then I got the book, the audio book, and hearing Steve Martin's voice telling the stories about him struggling as a stand-up just oh, just completely opened it up. So I know that I know your books pretty darn well. So now having them read, I may like tuck myself in at night and have you play it. It's like I was about to say, or you know, long commute. I'll be uh, I'll be your riding shotgun with you. The one thing that's disappointing, I must say, you say it's on. Um, you can get it uh, online. You can get a CD. I wish there was an eight track. I wish there was an eight yeah. track. But but it would but it would require like twenty eight tracks, and uh, that would be a real pain <laughs> in the ass to schlep around. Well, all right, hey Dan, thanks so much for being part of the Bull Durham Minute. And oh, thanks for asking me, man. Tomorrow, we're going to find out if Larry is going to continue laughing as hard as he is at Max Patkin and find out what's going to happen in the first ball game that we see in the movie. Until then, check us out on all the places you get your podcasts on Bull Durham Minute. This has been Bull Durham Minute, a Sully baseball podcast produced through Boy in the Dream Productions. Cover art by Christopher J. Nessie. Music by Rob Paravonian. This show is available wherever you get podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bull Durham Men, on Instagram at Bull Durham Minute, follow Sully on Twitter at Sully Baseball, and catch his other podcast, Locked on MLB, and catch other Movie by Minute podcasts by visiting moviesbyminute.com. I am your announcer, Allison Whitley. Catch you at the next episode of Bull Durham Minute. Thank you.